0: Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Well, we're starting a series uh, called uh, Prepared. Um, And as we're sort of thinking through what we're going to talk about this Easter season, Uh, as we were sort of preparing our hearts uh, through Lent, preparing our hearts to engage, you know, pretty deeply with the Good Friday story, the story of Jesus' uh, death on the cross and the story, of course, of his resurrection. couldn't really think of a better uh, text to to go through than to look at uh, John chapter 14 uh, through 17, which is Jesus' uh, teaching and Jesus' preparation for his disciples as they were about to go through all of that. Uh, this incredible text in the book of John is, is just so rich and so full that uh, that we're just going to go through it over a number of weeks and begin to just dig into it um, and just really, really engage with uh, with those moments. What we're going to see about that text is that it, it's basically, uh, some people would call it Jesus' last will and testament, some people would call it um, his sort of the final discourse. It's this period of time where Uh, just the the good uh, the the last supper has just happened and the disciples are all gathered in the upper room and jesus has this opportunity to teach and we just want to go through that i'm going to just read this uh first uh little part of the text um and i'm just going to check and make sure i got the yeah i'm in the right spot there yeah Uh, we're going to read it through once. We're gonna, just going to try to sort of take a surface look at it. And we're going to deal with one particularly difficult verse. And then we're going to dig into something that's a little bit deeper underneath it. Uh, so just bear with me as we go through. Let's just read this together. Uh, John 14, uh, 1 to uh, 11. We're actually not going to read quite that far. It starts like this. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going, Thomas said to him. Um, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for me. So at a surface level, we kind of look at this text and we see uh, hey, this is a, a moment of consternation for the disciples. They're worried about what's gonna happen to them. Um, and so Jesus sort of, sort of kind of throws some trite, and Jesus is never trite, but throws some little comfort at them. Hey, don't worry about it, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you, you're gonna go to heaven, and I'm the way you get there. That's just sort of the surface reading of the text Uh, there's this difficult verse here that we have to grapple with at the end of it how many of you know that sometimes a non-christian friend might have a difficult time with this verse i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me right you've heard that verse before it's pretty familiar what it speaks to is something that we call a christian particularism or christian exclusivism i just want to deal with this as a little sidebar before we get a little bit deeper into the text because this is something that uh, I think many of us wrestle with. How many of you have had a, had a discussion with a, with a friend who's a non-Christian sometime who said, man, I, I, I think Christianity is kind of cool, but you know, it's not the only way. Like, there's other ways to God. There's other ways that we can make this thing work. There's, uh, you know, wh- what's wrong with Buddhists and what's wrong with, with Islam and what's wrong with Hinduism, right, we've, we've all dealt with that. What is it about Christians that they're so exclusive that they think they have this only kind of a deal? Well, this is not the first time in history when this has been uh, a problem. This has not been the first time in history when people have wrestled with this. In AD 203, uh, there was a woman named Perpetua uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, She's one of the the early uh, martyrs in in Christendom. And what she was martyred for was not because she had a belief in Christ. Uh, That was actually okay within the framework of the Roman Empire. What she was martyred for, what she was killed for, was because she wouldn't uh, bow to all the other gods as well. She was an only Jesus person, and, and basically they ended up uh, killing for her, for her for it. They, she just refused to worship other gods. And so we live in a similar society. We live in a place where uh, religious pluralism kind of, kind of rules the day. Um, and the question that people would often ask you is, so what, again, what is wrong with all of these other religions? What's wrong with all of these other faiths? Why would I have to just do this Christianity thing? Why are you asking me uh, to follow this Jesus way, right? And so uh, we've got to grapple with a few different things here. The first thing is, is that it's just, from a, from, even from a logical perspective, it, it's not possible to take the world religions and line them up with one another and say that all of them are true. Uh, if you take something like Islam, and, and even, let's not even compare Christianity, but say you take something like uh, Islam and, and Buddhism and compare them. Well, in Islam, God is a personal God. In Buddhism, There is no personal God. Can those both be true? Can God both be personal and not personal? Uh, In Islam, God is a creator God. Uh, In in Buddhism, there's no creator. Uh, In Islam, there is sin that needs to be grappled with. Well, in in, uh, Buddhism, sin isn't even a concept that is, is a part of it, right? Uh, In Islam, uh, there's a possibility that your eternal soul matters and it goes on and it faces judgment. But in Buddhism, um, there's not even an enduring soul. You don't have a soul that endures as a specific personal living entity. Can both of those things be true? Um, In terms of uh, Islam, there's a, a way or a path to salvation. It's not the same path that we would see as Christians. It's a path that happens through works. Uh, But in Buddhism, there is no path to salvation. It's a nihilism. Everybody just becomes everything, or everybody becomes nothing, depending on how you look at it. Right, so you look at even those two religions and you see that they both are, are exclusive. They're both, uh, they're both different from one another. The things that each one says is true, uh, they can't both be true. So we have a problem with that idea that all religions are true. It's not something that can be supported uh, by any kind of rational argument or not something that can be supported logically. Uh, the other uh, thing that we have about, about Christians, the other sort of argument against uh, Christianity as a, as a faith that is uh, what we would say is, is the only way is that people would look at us and they would say what? They would say we're arrogant, right? It sounds pretty arrogant to say it's kind of my way or the highway, right? And so we want to, we of course, approach our friends with humility and we want to uh, wrestle with that, with, with giving people dignity and caring for people and walking them through things relationally. But at the same time, what we can't do is allow people to say that because Christians appear arrogant their beliefs are necessarily untrue, right? That's a logical fallacy. It's it's an argument ad hominem. It's an argument that sort of says, um, hey, because a person's character isn't true or isn't good or I don't like that person's character, what they believe must not be true, right? And that's just not a logical connection you can make. You could have a doctor that would produce a, a cure for cancer and he could have uh, you know, a really bad attitude. He could have a real, really rotten attitude, but you would still want to consider his research and still want to consider uh, his studies and you would still want to consider maybe taking treatment for him even if he uh, got a speeding ticket, right? So so a person's character doesn't necessarily define whether or not their beliefs are true, although as Christians, I mean, that's an an argument that that we need to listen to carefully because our character has often uh, hurt people and has often divided people from Christ. They look at us, they judge us, and they can't hear the kind words we say. So something that needs to challenge us, but it's not a reason to discount the faith. Uh, The other argument there uh, is that uh, if Christianity is true, then it's not fair because some people would uh, have grown up, if you've grown up in in Jerusalem in a Jewish family, uh, you would be a Christian. If you grew up in the Arab quarter in Jerusalem, you would be uh, probably a Muslim. Uh, If you had grown up in Syria, you would be a Muslim. If you'd grown up in Northern Ireland, you would probably be a Roman Catholic. If you'd grown up in Southern Ireland, you would probably be a Protestant. And that's an argument, uh, sort of like a genetic fallacy, right? That uh, because, it's, because of where a person has come from, because of where a person is born, because of their genetic makeup, their belief can't be true. That's not a connection that we can make. Somebody can be born anywhere and come to a belief that is true. So we don't want to listen to that argument. And what that leaves us with is this idea that Uh, We have a sense of of people in our culture and people in our world that are looking at Christianity and they're saying uh, to themselves, what what do you believe about people who haven't accepted uh, or haven't ever had the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus, to hear the story of Jesus? Are all those people going to hell? And Paul answers that really clearly in the book of Romans when he says, um, hey, uh, I'll look at the text here. Um, This is Romans chapter 1, 9, and he's talking about all of humanity. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse that there is a way in which we can see something of God, see something of who He is. And we know uh, from from what we understand as Christians from the revelation of Jesus and who He is, through the character He displayed through His life, that He is good, that He is just, and that He is kind. And so what we know from that is that Jesus will judge us based on what we know. And that's what we see in this passage in Romans, that we're based on the knowledge that, judged based on the knowledge that we have. And so God looks at somebody on the far side of the world who has never heard the story of Jesus. And this is what theologians uh, who and, and apologists who look at this believe, is that if they don't know, and if they haven't heard the story of Jesus, and they pass into the arms of the Father, that, and they pass into in, into death, that they are judged by the posture of their heart towards God based on what they knew and that the blood of Christ, so we would never say that somebody could be saved uh, apart from the blood of Christ, but that God in his mercy and his grace uh, recognizes the posture of their heart towards him, whether they look at him with joy, whether they look at him with love, whether they look at this creator God that they've somehow sensed is there and have a heart that's positive towards him, that those people are given an opportunity to meet Jesus. And what Christians would say is that anyone who experiences judgment, anyone who experiences hell, anyone who experiences the wrath of God, we do so because we've chosen it. Because God is kind, and he is good, and he is merciful. And so the claims of a Christian exclusivity or Christian particularism stand on that basis that we know that God is kind, we know that he is generous, we know that he's good, we know that he Uh, is inviting people into his kingdom, and our job is simply to make him known and to proclaim that way towards him. So I I just wanted to deal really quickly with that verse, uh, because I think think it's just something that we run into all the time, something that sort of ruins our confidence as believers as we go out and try to tell the story of Jesus. We're like, people are going to say these things to us, and I just don't have any answer for it, right? How many of you have experienced that? How many of you quake in your boots sometimes, right, when it comes to to having discussions with your friends? And so just from time to time we're going to do this, uh, do a little bit of apologetics together so that we can build our confidence and build our boldness. Now all of that aside, this text was not written to unbelievers. This passage that we're looking at today was not written to unbelievers. In fact, uh, this text that we just read is something that was written uh, to the disciples of Jesus and delivered to them actually in one of the most intimate settings we can imagine. So what does this text, I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, not, mean not as a declaration uh, to uh, the unchurched to say you better find Jesus. What does I am the way, the truth, and the life. This text means to you and I, those of us who are believers in the church who have been part of this thing for a little while. And in order for us to understand that, we have to have a look at the context, and we have to have a look at what's happening here. So remember, Jesus and his disciples, they're gathered together in the upper room. Uh, they have been with him. Uh, they've been in this in, in incredible journey with Jesus. They've been in on a, an incredible journey with him. They have seen healings. They have seen miracles, Uh, they have seen blind eyes open, Uh, they have seen these incredibly powerful encounters, they've seen demons cast out, they've seen him address the Pharisees, Uh, they've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, they've just experienced him walking into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry, with all of the people with palm branches, waving them, we're going to celebrate that at Palm Sunday. Uh, saying, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's marched into Jerusalem. He's taken up his authority, and he's cleansed the temple. And the, the, the apostles, the disciples who are with him, are, are approaching uh, these moments with, with this certain expectation that this is the moment where the king is going to step up. He's going to take his place. He's begin going to begin to rule and reign uh, in, in the world. But Jesus all along through this time is beginning to say these really strange things to them. Uh, In John 12, 24, he's talking to some Gentiles with the disciples listening on, and he just sort of woven into his teaching just says this quiet phrase, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it could bear no fruit. And they could tell he's talking about himself. John 12, 34, the light is among you just a little while longer, And they're like, what do you mean just a little while longer? And there's all of these places uh, through. uh, We see some of them in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And, and of course, in John where Jesus is signaling uh, to his disciples that a change is about to happen. He's beginning to signal uh, that he's going to be going away. And the disciples aren't quite getting it. Uh, In chapter 13, again, it just had the triumphal entry. And Jesus sort of said, okay, let's go. Let's go away to an upper room. Let's prepare the Passover. Uh, Let's have a meal together. And he calls them uh, together in this upper room. Uh, He's just washed their feet. The beginning of John chapter 13, Jesus, like, talk about an intimate moment with the disciples. He's, He's washed their feet. He's taken his... Hands in the water and and wiped the grime from between their toes and wiped their feet with a towel. Again, an intimate moment. He's had this incredible, excruciating, painful, grief filled moment with uh, Judas where he looks at Judas and Judas looks him in the eye and judas knows that jesus knows judas is going to betray him and jesus knows that judas is about to betray him and they have this moment where jesus says what you're about to do go and do it quickly and it says and satan entered into judas and he goes out and he, and he goes to betray jesus all of these things are coming uh, to this illusion and at this moment jesus knows that this is his last chance to impart something really rich and really deep uh, into the life of the disciples. Uh, He's just about just moments away from walking a path from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where he is about to sweat blood as he cries out in anguish before the Lord and prepares his heart for the cross. And so he's got this moment, and he sort of begins to to resurface this idea that he's going away. He says, little children, uh, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I now also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And their expectations about their glorious future with the Messiah begin to just evaporate. They begin to be uh, uh, be shaken. They begin to be... Uh, troubled in heart. And Jesus sees this troubling in their hearts. And he says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. They're beginning to see that they're about to experience some grief in their journey with their Savior. And that word uh, troubled, uh, that Greek word "tarasso," means to put something in motion that ought to be still. To take something that was solid and to begin to kind of rock it back and forth. Can can you sort of imagine, you know, Seth Stella or Simon's guitar as it's sort of on a stand there and one of the little kids are just standing beside it going, <laughs> how many of you would begin to feel like, <laughs> like somebody go and catch this thing, somebody go and stop it from falling over. Uh, an inner emotional agitation, uh, they're beginning to be stirred up and beginning to be upset and it's because... Uh, this view that they have, and we can look at that image with the arrow. Uh, they ha- they have this expectation going forward that Jesus is going to come. He's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to begin to deliver them materia- materially. He's going to sort of. Uh, they, they imagine they're probably imagining different strategies that Jesus could take. He's going to go into Herod's palace. Uh, he's going to confront Herod. Uh, he's going to have Herod's guards lock Herod in chains. Jesus is going to assume control of the Jewish military. At that point, he's going to appoint his wonderful disciples, amazing positions of authority in this new leadership structure he's got. They're pretty excited and are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Um, uh, Somebody's going to get to be commanding the military. Somebody's going to be in charge of the ministry of get us some Falafel, quick! I don't know what it is, Um, but they're going to begin to put put that structure together. Uh, Those soldiers, Herod's people, are going to sort of push the Roman soldiers out of Jerusalem. They're going to be able to fortify the walls. They're going to be able to call people in the country to strengthen the defenses, and eventually they're going to be able to move and take over the land that was once the promised land and make it their own again. These are their visions, their ideas of what it was like, and they've had this amazing trajectory with Jesus, this amazing journey of ministry, of power ministry, of healing and of deliverance. Like, like they, they're just expecting there to be more of it. And Jesus takes this hoped-for trajectory, this expectation, and he begins to shake it. He begins to shatter it. As we look at that image, next image there, we see as Jesus tells them he's going to take a hard turn vertical, uh, they're left with troubled hearts. One, what they'd expected was gonna happen isn't gonna happen. And two, they just love him. They love him and they expect that they are gonna be filled uh, with grief. They've seen and heard stories of messiahs before. Jesus was not the first person to uh, have been thought to be the messiah. There've been other messiahs who were killed and who died. And what do you do when your messiah gets killed? You pack it in and go home and look for a new one. And so they're experiencing this turmoil. What do we do next? And Jesus answers this turmoil, not, not, not in, in, in a way that we would expect. Like you would kind of expect him to, I don't know how, how we would expect him to answer it, but sometimes to really understand sort of what's going on behind the scenes, what's going on in the disciples' hearts, uh, to know what the question they really have is, you need to look at Jesus' answer to know what it is. And so he answers the turmoil of their hearts uh, with this next verse in verse 2. And he says this, he says, "'In my Father's house are many rooms. "'If it were not so, "'would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? "'And if I go and prepare a place for you, "'I will come again and I will take you to myself, "'that where I am, there you may be also.'" Well, why is the solution to the turmoil of their hearts uh, an encouragement that he's about to prepare a room for them? It's because what they're worried about is their home. Jesus is gone, this incredible mission that we've been on with him is is amazing. It's it's wonderful, it's incredible. He's gonna recreate Jerusalem. This is gonna be fantastic. Uh, we've given up our homes, we've given up our vocations, we've given up our careers, uh, we've given up our fishing boats, we, we've left all of that stuff aside uh, to, to follow him, and now he's just going away. Look, what are we going to do? Am I going to go live back in Galilee? Am I going to live here in Jerusalem? Uh, where am I going to go? What, are, where, what am I going to do? And their hearts are filled with, with a concern about the practical things. Of life, Where am I going to dwell? What's my life going to look like? And just just as ours would be, we would be worried about our homes. We'd be worried about our cars. We would be worried about clothing. We'd be worried about our vocation. We'd be worried, like, what am I going to do with my life? And in Jesus saying to them, he knows what's really troubled their hearts. He knows that this concern about what they're going to do with their lives is, is rising up inside of them. He says, oh, don't you worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what he's doing in that is he's saying, you need not be concerned about your homes. You need not be concerned about your food. You need not be concerned about your cars. You do not need to be concerned about this mission ending because the mission goes on. That's what he's saying when he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The mission goes on home isn't now home is later home isn't now home is later and it's going to be a good home and i'm going to be there but it's later and this is a theme that is really really clear in scriptures Uh, john 17 uh, 14 15 a little bit later uh, in, in the story Uh, As he's praying, he says, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. This is Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking you, God, to take them out. I'm not asking you to take them away. But while they're here, while they're on mission, while they're doing the stuff, would you protect them from the enemy? Uh, We look ahead to Hebrews 13. uh, The author of Hebrews expressing this. For here we have no lasting city. We have no lasting home, but we seek the one that is to come. We look at 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You are sojourners and strangers. And so in this text for us as Jesus' disciples, imagining what our lives are going to be like, he is... Uh, enthroned in heaven right now. We are living in an in between time. We are concerned about our homes. We are concerned about our cars. We are concerned about our vocations. We are concerned about all of the stuff that we have to do. And we need to remember home isn't now, home is later. We are on a mission right now. We are on the road right now. We are following Jesus right now. So as a, as a devotional question for you, as a practical application question for you, are there ways in which you, are there ways in which I am living impatiently right now, trying to make heaven now, trying to make heaven's home now when I ought to be on mission? Is my heart troubled because I'm concerned so much about the details of my life, the details of my security, the details of my happiness, that I don't have a hold of the idea that I'm meant to be a road warrior? Are there ways in which you are a homebody when God is calling you to be a road warrior? There sure are in my life. There are ways in which I seek security, in which I seek comfort. Where God says, comfort isn't now, but he comforts later. Right now you've got a job to do. And is it possible that there is even more joy in the adventure than there could ever be in the comfort of home? Than there could ever be in having things work out just the way we want? Is it possible that the mission he's calling us into, is it possible that the adventure that the challenge he's calling us to is way more fun than it would be if we just keep things the same and keep things secure and keep things feeling like home. Don't let your heart be troubled about this home thing because the joy is on the road. The joy is on the mission. The joy is out there. What is he calling you to do? And so Jesus goes on. Uh, He says, and if I go, I prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself. And this is really interesting because I I think I'm gonna unpack this for us. I think this actually speaks to a question of identity that we wrestle with. And if I go and prepare a place for you, are any of you under the impression that heaven needs much preparing? (laughs) What preparing does heaven need? Like what work does he need to do on it? Did God make it too small? Jesus needs to, you know, sort of file some for some kind of building permit so they can build an addition? Right? Is that what needs to happen in heaven? Uh, is the furniture old? He needs to make a trip to IKEA before we can show up? We need to update the furniture? Are the streets of gold? Are they a little tarnished? And he kind of needs to polish them up, or are there cobwebs in the corners? Is, is the stat, is, is heaven run down? What's he saying? What do you mean I, you have to go and prepare a place for me? What, what's he getting at here? He says this. He says, and if I go, I will prepare a place for you. I will come again, and I will take you to your room? No. I will take you to myself. The place that he's preparing for you is not a place at all, it's a person. You know, and that is something that speaks to uh, our questions uh, of identity. I don't know know what it's like for you, but when when you imagine heaven, when you imagine that glorious future, what of yourself do you imagine getting to take into it? I imagine, I, there, I remember there was this time, I was in St. Jacob's, Ontario, uh, with our friends Mike and Brooke Poli, and we were in one of those uh, old furniture stores on the main drag, and we went through the building, looked at all this furniture, and it wound up in this tiny upper room. And I walked into this room, and I saw the most beautiful, comfy reading chair you've ever seen. And my heart just went, whoa! It was one of those like brown, overstuffed, Comfy chairs with the brass studs in it. I looked at the price tag on, on it. The ottoman was $1,800. The chair was $6,800 and that was 20 years ago. And I'm like, I am so having this in my room in heaven. Like this this is, is gonna be there. This is gonna be there. What else of yourself? Are you imagining you're taking to heaven? I mean, I'm sure in heaven and in the new earth, I'm gonna, there, there's going to be great expanses of water, and I'm not going to have such a rickety fishing boat for sure. It's not going to be a little 9.9 horse putt-putt. If I'm going to make traction on the new earth, I'm going to get to where the fish are, I'm going to have a new lund. <laughs> right? Come on. But there is something actually really wicked in all of this. There's something inside of me that imagines that heaven is made to accommodate me, that imagines that heaven is made to be shaped around who I am, what my desires are, and what my identity is. And what Jesus is saying here in this text is, I go and prepare a place for you. I will take you to myself. And that word that is the purpose of all this. That where I am, you may be also. It's all about him. Now if the place that he's preparing is himself, How is he preparing it? He's not just making up words here. How is he preparing that place for me and for you? John 17, John 19 says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, To the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is named Golgotha, and there they crucified him. Later on, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, but for his tunic they cast lots. Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. They stripped him naked. And after all this, this is just snippets from the story of the crucifixion. After all this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch, and he held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received, the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That room, that dwelling place was prepared by Jesus for you with his suffering, with what he endured on the cross. And what he did on the cross was only one simple task when it came to preparing that dwelling place. For you, he unlocked the door. That's what was wrong with your dwelling place. That's what needed to be fixed. That's what needed to be prepared. Jesus endured the cross to open the door to the dwelling place with him in which you could spend eternity. The door is wide open. It is his place. It is him. And he has opened the door. Home is not a place. It is not a place of our identity. It is not a place where we bring ourselves. We see in Revelation 21, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty. There is no building. The temple is the Lord, God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the God of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. He is the light in the room, and He is the room itself. and He is the door that is open. It's all about him and what does my overstuffed chair from st jacobs have to do with that absolutely nothing we lay down our identity we lay down our denominational identities we lay down our histories we lay down our vocations we lay down our Needs We lay down our desires for care and sustenance and we lay it down and be prepared to leave it behind and enter into what he has for us. Because his identity is everything and ours is nothing. And he goes on to say this to the, the, the text that we are really wrestled with earlier. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and life. And it's amazing that it's Thomas that asks him this question. Uh, I don't know what you know about Thomas, but uh, Thomas is is the only disciple where we have almost no backstory on him. Thomas is the disciple without an identity. In fact, what many scholars do when they look at the life of Thomas is they think, Okay, he wasn't a fisherman, he wasn't a tax collector, uh, he wasn't a zealot, We, we don't know what he was. And what people like to speculate, and we have actually no way of knowing this, is that Thomas was a homeless person. Thomas didn't have a vocation, he didn't have a job, he didn't have a home, he didn't have a village, a place where he came from. was just a person who wandered and and jesus found him and and invited him into the journey this this incredible homeless person who uh, was walking with jesus and and what i love about that what i love about this character thomas who had almost no identity before jesus is that of all the disciples and all their missions work and everywhere they went thomas went further on the journey than any of them thomas went beyond the roman empire and as uh, church history tells us, and sort of the legends of some of what we see in, in the Far East and, and in India, is that Thomas went outside the safety of Roman roads and went outside the safety of the Roman world. And he made his way to Southern India, uh, to what is called Tamilia, which is the southern tip of that continent or of that, uh, that country of India. And he made his way there. And Christians there point back to the life of Thomas. Isn't it interesting that the disciple with the least identity followed Jesus further on the journey. And so are we there? Are we willing to be people without anchors in our identity, anchors in our security, attachment to our homes, attachment to our cars? Are we people that see him as the way, the truth, and the life? That word there, I am the way, the truth, and the life. that I am echoes uh, from the Septuagint. Uh, Jesus, uh, God saying to Moses with the, the burning bush, I am that I am. Jesus says it with that level of gravity. I am my identity, who I am. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, the way, I am the hodos, the Greek word, I am the road that you're walking on. I am the truth, the Greek word aletheia. I am the grounded reality. I am what is ultimate. I am what is true. Uh, Nothing is more real than me. Nothing exists apart from me. I am the truth and I am the life. I am your physical existence in the future going forward. And you don't have that at all without me. He is the road. The road is our home. He is the truth. His reality is our identity. His reality is our message. His reality is our mission. He is the destination. He is the home at the end of the road. And He is the strength that gets us there, that moves us along. And so, be comforted, you troubled ones. (laughs) The joy, the hope, the adventure, the life, the fun is all on the road. It's all on the mission. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we decouple from our troubles and place ourselves on the journey with Jesus again. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.